contributions from a variety of different members of the family each week as we all bring our gifts and our contributions to the family gathering. We're glad you're with us, whether you're joining us from home or here in our worship center. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I remember hearing a song on the oldie station in the station wagon growing up. Uh, I'd literally start weeping every time. Uh, it was by Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. You may know it about the relationship between a father and a son as the years go by. If you haven't heard it, it's written from the perspective of this dad who now wants to start putting effort into relationship with his son. There's one verse in particular in that song that would kind of open the floodgates for me. Uh, it goes like this. <clears throat> we came from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and then said with a smile, what I'd really like, dad is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. I know a couple of you just dropped a kid off at college. Sorry, maybe should have given a trigger warning on that one. Um, set aside for a second that if you know the song, you know that the son learned that pattern from his dad who had been absent during his younger years. With God, that's never been the case, perfect father. Still, have you ever had a season in which that lyric was a depiction of your relationship with your heavenly father? What I'd really like, dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later, can I have them please? I know I slip into that from time to time. God says, Hey, I'm, I'm proud of you. Can we sit for a while? And I say, what I'd really like, Dad, is career success. See you later. Can I have that success, please? Or what I'd really like, Dad, is an explanation of why you let my friend's baby die. See you later. Can I have that explanation, though, please? In other words, I don't really have all that much time for God during one of these seasons except maybe to ask him for the car keys, so to speak. Our psalmist today, who happens to be King David, seems to have experienced a give-me-the-car-keys type of season in his own relationship with God before that relationship matured into something much deeper and more fulfilling. He recounts that transformation in Psalm 131. Would you turn there with me if you haven't already? Psalm 131. Uh, while you're turning there, Reminder that these are the Psalms of Ascent that we're preaching through. You can see that in the superscription at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, these are songs that God's people would sing on their way up to Jerusalem to gather for worship. It's a short psalm, just three verses. But as Charles Spurgeon said about this psalm, one of the shortest to read, one of the longest to learn. Take a look at it with me. Psalm 131. Uh, you see the word but at the beginning of verse 2. There it is, because those first two verses contrast with each other. Verse 1 is David speaking negatively. Here's what I don't do. And verse 2 is David speaking positively. Here's what I do instead. He waits until verse 3 to move away from his personal story to offer his takeaway 
for his readers, which turns out to be the same way Psalm 130 ended, hope in the Lord. So our plan of attack today as we explore this passage, there's a clear dominant metaphor in this psalm. So back in the day, you didn't use underline or italics when you wanted to emphasize something. If you wanted to emphasize it, you repeated it in writing, right? That would make it stand out in bold to your readers. So the one thing that's repeated in this psalm is this metaphor of a child who has moved from infancy to maturity. Like a weaned child with its mother, David says. That's what my soul is like. I'm convinced that that underlined, so to speak, metaphor is a key to understanding this psalm. And so we're going to structure our explanation of this psalm today around that metaphor. Two parts, sort of like a before and after. Infancy and maturity before weaning and after weaning would be another way of saying it. We'll have to draw on all three verses to fully understand the two parts of the journey. The first part of the journey, though, for many of us, all of us, is infancy, spiritually speaking, pre-weaning. And what we see here in this psalm about the infancy period, I think, is that in our pride, this is maybe a description of the infancy period, in our pride, we desperately grab at God to try to obtain the great and wonderful things that we think he should give us. In our pride, we desperately grab at God to obtain the great and wonderful things that we think he should give us. Uh, it seems that David is highlighting pride as a characteristic of his own period of spiritual infancy. Look at how verse 1 says it. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. A heart that's lifted up and eyes that are raised too high. When, when those phrases come up elsewhere in Scripture, they're always metaphors for pride, thinking more highly of oneself than we ought. Now, in an age like ours, when pride is considered a virtue, many of us have a complicated relationship with pride. In fact, I'll, I'll speak for myself. It was a little jarring to me even to read these words. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me at the end of verse 1. Because if David, if he was enrolled at the elementary school down the street and said something like that in his class, we know what his teacher would say, right? Chin up, Davy boy. Nothing's too great or too marvelous for you, right? Reach for the stars. Pride is a tricky topic for me personally, too, because for as long as I can remember, I've had these two voices in my head that seem contradictory, but nevertheless have deeply influenced me. Uh, the first one is, you were made to do something epic. You were made to do something epic. Right? Somewhere along the way, in middle school or high school, I came across these Old Testament passages when God uses this phrase a couple times. He says, I'm going to do something that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. And my hair as a teenager would just stand on end just reading that, right? So it made, it made sort of like a vision statement for my life. I would journal about it. Lord, make me the kind of person who lives the kind of life they write books about, the kind of person who leads some kind of epic movement that makes the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. And one day, a friend was gracious enough to point out to me, hey, Tim, you know, you talk a lot about the ears tingling verses, um, I went back and looked at them, and every time the Bible actually uses that, every time God says that, it's actually times when he's about to rain down judgment on humanity. So I, I think maybe like people's ears are tingling not because they're excited, but because they're scared. 
maybe you don't want to go that direction anymore. <clears throat> Even after realizing that, though, it turns out that voice didn't ever totally go away. It still tries to seduce me, right? You were made for something epic, Tim. That's one voice. There's another voice I hear all the time. Paradoxically, this one has influenced me no less deeply than the first one. Maybe you can relate to it. Some of you have the same voice in your head. The second voice says, know your place, right? Know your place. I'll give you an example of how this voice worked for me as a kid. As a kid, I would sometimes wake up scared during the night. Wanted to wake my parents up, but then that voice, know your place. And I'd say, good point. Who am I to disrupt their sleep, right? Uh, my kids do not have this voice in their head. Uh, so instead of waking my parents up, I would stand next to their bed and stare at one of their faces from about three inches away. And then if they did wake up, if they happened to wake up, which of course they always did with screams of terror because they thought they were about to be murdered, I would tell myself, oh, I, I bet they woke up on their own. I didn't wake them up. I didn't say anything. That's how I'd reassure myself that I didn't necessarily overstep my place. And I still hear that voice. Know your place, Tim. Obeying that voice has made me slow to exercise needed leadership in situations where I don't hold an official leadership title. Obeying that voice has made me slow to challenge friends on red flags in their lives when I'm not directly asked for advice. Obeying that voice has even made me silently suffer through restaurant meals when the waitress got my order totally wrong, but I didn't want to inconvenience her to send it back. You're made to do something epic. Know your place. How could both of those voices deeply shape the same person's identity? I know some of you have the same two voices. They can because that's exactly the MO of our enemy. He looks to puff us up one minute, and then accuse us the next. That's what he does. He's just as happy when we think too highly of ourselves or when we think too lowly of ourselves because if we engage in either self-congratulation or self-pity, either way, who am I focused on? Me, right? Either way, I have myself at the center of my universe, and so in either self-love or self-loathing, it's pride, and the enemy wins. Pride is a feature of our infancy. And quick note for clarity, I am naming pride as the core problem in David's pre-weaned spiritual infancy period because I'm reading the weaned child metaphor of verse 2 back into verse 1. I don't know how, how else to understand it, right? Take a look at it with me. Verse 1, Lord, I'm not prideful. Verse 2, instead I'm like a weaned child. The, the way the contrast is framed suggests that pride has something significant to do with David's pre-weaning years of spiritual infancy. So, if pride was a feature of his infancy that now he's happy to leave behind, let's reflect more deeply on the specific expression of pride that he says he wants to steer clear of. Here, there it is, end of verse 1. Occupying himself with things too great and too marvelous for him. He doesn't do that anymore, he says. But that word things, it's pretty vague. What sort of things does he mean, right? Is he giving us permission to say, for example, anything too intellectually challenging, that's too marvelous for me. I'm not going to waste my time on it, right? Or I've got a vine in my backyard that's gotten out of hand. Do I tell Sarah, 
So I get to tell Sarah, I'm not going to occupy myself with things too great for me. Right? What is David talking about, about these things too great, too marvelous for him? What, what does he mean by things? I think there are at least two things, two manifestations of pride to be on guard for, on guard against, that David may be hinting at in this text. Uh, here they are. The entitled demand for answers and the frantic pursuit of greatness. The entitled demand for answers and the frantic pursuit of greatness. First, the entitled demand for answers. The things too great and too wonderful for David likely included unanswered questions that David had for God. You may hear echoes in David's words uh, from Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you're familiar with it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there are many truths that God has given us access to, and we should by all means explore and learn and internalize those things that he has revealed to us. But there is another category of things, secret things, that God hasn't yet given us access to, may never give us access to some of them, why he let you get cancer. You may never get that answer, at least this side of heaven. Whether you'll ever have a spouse or kids, you may have to wait a long time to find the answer to that question. Why Darth Vader didn't sense that Leah was his daughter, right? We all ask God those things, those questions that go unanswered. But verse 1 of our psalm reminds us that to presume that we have a right to know, a right to know all of God's plans and to see all of his wonders and to explore all of his inner thoughts, that's sinful because in the end, that entitlement reflects a desire to rise above our human station to take the place of God. David was convinced that he needed to stay in his lane. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. Those belong to God alone. So entitled demand for answers. But then the other one I think that may be hinted at here is the frantic pursuit of greatness. Another manifestation of pride that he may be wanting his readers to be on guard against when he says, things too great and too wonderful for me. Frantic pursuit of greatness, great status, great power. Packing more into a day than any human should be able to pack into a day. Accomplishing feats grander than most humans are able to accomplish. Greatness. It's possible that David had in mind that sort of greatness in addition to demanding answers to these big theological questions. David certainly fell prey to the quest for worldly greatness at times, as have many of us, as did Baruch uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, who was rebuked by God in Jeremiah 45 with these words, Do ye seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Many of us as well have experienced the pursuit of greatness turning frantic, haven't we? We can see hints of that even here, beginning in verse 2. Post-weaning, David has a calm and quiet soul. That's the contrast he draws, which suggests that prior to this maturing, prior to this weaning, the waters were troubled in his soul. It was noisy in there. And if you've ever seen a nursing infant at feeding time, you know that frantic can be a good word for the scene. Yelling, screaming, grabbing, desperation, anything but calm and quiet. We can be the same way, frantically filling calendars up with resume candy in pursuit of some version of greatness, just grasping for it, grabbing at it frantically. 
let's go there for a minute. Shine, shine a light on ourselves as a church family. Right? We've been talking about pride. We've been talking about things too great or too marvelous for us. We've been talking about grabbing at God in an attempt to get those things because through either self-congratulation or self-pity, either way, we're making this ourselves the center of our private universes. To what extent does all that describe us as a church? Let's ask that question. And uh, this isn't scolding time by any means. But I think many of you will agree with me that our church has a distinct culture of frantic activity. Like we certainly have plenty of calm, quiet souls. But that's not our norm. Closer to our norm are individuals who serve in like four or five different ministries. And that's just counting their commitments here in this building. The most common answer I hear in our church family to the question, how are you, is busy, tired, stressed, exhausted, something along those lines. I don't think you'd be wrong if you said that in some ways we become a mirror image of the busy, tired, stressed, exhausted neighborhoods around us. And my fear is that pretty soon all we'll be able to say to our neighbors when they visit is something like, hey, your life is chaos and you're stretched too thin. Come to our church so you can be chaotically stretched thin for God instead. <laughs> Is that the vision of abundant life that we want to hold out, that we have to offer? Because it's possible that that's what people will see when they pull back the curtain if it goes unchecked, right? And listen, I am not pointing any fingers. Uh, fingers are all pointed in this direction. I am guilty of perpetuating and fueling this frenzied culture especially in my early years on staff here. And I haven't publicly shared a lot of my journey on this the last few years because, to be honest, I'm a little worried about what folks will think who maybe have North Shore expectations for a pastor who should be grinding 80 hours a week. But this summer I've concluded that uh, it's probably been a mistake not to share that, so I want to just let you in for a moment on that. Uh, again, before I share this, to be clear, I'm by no means claiming to be the poster child for the calm and quiet soul. Uh, this is still a growth edge for me for sure, but I do want to share that in the last four years, personally, I've gone from working 70 hours a week or so at this job to working 40 to 45 hours and almost never more. Started taking all my vacation days. Uh, I think some might have this perception I just bounce from one thing to the next all week, but the present reality is that actually, yes, I bounce from one thing to the next for certain periods of time, but then I have other extended periods of time in which I really do calm and quiet my soul. Some of you know, because you see me out in the front yard in shorts just staring off into space at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, uh, or you run into me at the beach late afternoon on a Thursday just kind of relaxing because I have meetings later that night, don't need to push hard all day. I still have a ways to go, and I only share that because if any of you are like, I have to pack my life to the gills with church activity because that's what Pastor Tim's doing, and you know, solidarity, you need to know I've actually started walking a new way, and I'm sorry for the times that I've steered you down an unhealthy path. Uh, don't follow where I was going. There's only death in that direction. And plenty of you have found that out. I have had the same conversation with about 10 of you this summer. I have so much admiration for you all who initiated this conversation with me. That conversation in each of those cases was overdue. So this morning I'm going to just open it up and make it a big church-wide conversation. 
uh, for the others who need to have the same conversation. Ready? Okay, here's how it goes. Several of you came to me this summer saying, I don't know what to do. I'm so burned out. So stre- I'm stretched so thin. And I said, if someone came to you saying what you're saying to me, what would you say to them? And immediately you knew exactly what the answer was. It's time to stop, to cut, to pull back. You're doing too much. There's no calm or quiet because everything that happens at the church, you're here serving at it. It's time to prune some branches. John 15, right? If you just cut some off and leave a few, those few branches that remain will actually have enough nutrients to bear some fruit. But God needs me to do my part, you say, right? You ever think that? Have you ever wrestled with guilt when you thought about taking a step back from frantic service? Like you think, I might be putting God in a tough spot. I love A.W. Tozer's response to that thought, that God might be in trouble without us doing our part. He asks, have you ever heard a seraph sing? Seraphs are those like angelic creatures from the Bible. Uh, Have you ever heard a seraph sing? A seraph has a much better voice than you. And they never stop singing day or night. God was never impressed by your gifts. He's not having to patch together a contingency plan because you took a step back from singing at church. Uh, we need people to sing at church by the way. No, I'm just kidding. So this is a message, though, in all seriousness, that our church needs to hear. Uh, we, if you have a friend who's serving downstairs in kids' ministry this morning, send this link to the sermon to them tonight. Tell them to make sure and listen to it. Some folks here who are serving in five ministries need to cut down to two. Some who are serving in two need to cut down to one. And, and I know some of you may be freaking out as I say that because you think about the holes that may open up when people step down or step back or prune branches, right? How are our ministries going to run? Well, maybe some of them won't. Maybe they've had their season, you know, but there's another possibility, and it's this. As you're pruning branches to make room for others to bear fruit, other branches to bear fruit, there may be somebody else in the congregation who isn't really serving yet, and the branches they're going to prune or they're going to they're play one less round of golf a week, and they're going to jump in and serve for the first time here and take your place. And now they see a need once the hole is opened up, and they're able to step in, and they've got the bandwidth to do so. Now... Everybody's contributing, right? No spectators. But now the culture isn't frantic activity on the part of a small group of people, but rather people walking in saying, hey, this place is kind of refreshing. Nobody's in a hurry. It's like a whole building full of calm, quiet souls. Imagine if that was us. A lot of ground covered on that first point. When when I'm an infant, though, in the, in the center of my own universe, all I can do is grab at God in an attempt to get from him what I want, what I think I need. I grab at him for validation that my life counts because I serve at church six nights a week. I grab at him for answers to why his plans for my life didn't match my plans for my life. In the end, it's all pride because I'm at the center and I'm treating him like my vending machine. Now, much more briefly, the contrast maturity. This is post-weaning now. Uh, and I think what we're going to see here is that in humility, the picture of maturity of being weaned in this psalm is that in humility, we lovingly hope in God to experience relational intimacy with him. In humility, we lovingly hope in God to experience relational intimacy 
with him. Look at the contrast between those two really quick. Uh, I've emphasized relational intimacy here uh, because that's at the heart of the metaphor of the weaned child. It's pride versus humility. It's desperately grabbing versus lovingly hoping. Um, imagine for a moment the satisfaction of a nursing child at the breast. But, but wait, actually, in the passage, it's not a nursing child, right? It's a, it's a weaned child, which is a different sort of picture of contentment. Once weaned, the child is, the picture of a child is now, this child just snuggled in mommy's lap, right? Not frantically screaming for something mommy can give him, but just happy to be with mommy. Can you see why that's just the image that David wants to use to describe the state of his soul? There was a time for him, presumably, before he was weaned, when he screamed for the things that he wanted God to give him. And in our self-centered moments, haven't we all spent plenty of time doing just that? Crying to God for the financial stability that we want him to give us, the experience of sexual intimacy that we feel deprived of in our singleness, the control that we think we need, the happiness he seems to be withholding. You haven't given me the things that make life worth living, God. That's not a weaned child. That's the infant, pre-weaning, coming to God, not necessarily to be with him, but to whine for what we want him to give us. God hears our tantrums and says, what's wrong with you, whiny infant? Toughen up. No. It's the crazy thing, right? God is incredibly patient with us in that infancy stage. He knows most of us are going to come to him for selfish reasons, especially early on. And he smiles over us, sings over us, even in our selfish whining. And he keeps providing us with everything we need, answering so many of our prayers, even the selfish ones. Still, he shows us that tender patience, not because he hopes that we'll remain infants forever, he wants us to grow into a deeper relationship with him. It would be tragic, wouldn't it, for a person who uh, to only ever want their mom for her milk and then never have any use for mom again? Eventually, all of us with moms learned to love mom for mom. We matured until one day we realized we wanted to be with mom just to be with mom. That's where David has come on his journey with God. He's found that intimate experience of wanting God just for God's sake. One more Spurgeon quote, just because it's so good. Some of you have tasted uh, something like this. To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forgo the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. We're starting to be weaned, in other words, when God can say no to us and then we go find comfort in that very God who said no to us. He's moving now to the center of our universe in such a way that we hope not in his stuff, but in him, himself. And that's the call that David ends on in verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Not in the Lord's gifts, not in the things that he provides, right? Hope in the Lord himself from this time forth and forevermore. We've made an opportunity for our congregation to put this into practice, seeking God for God's sake this Saturday. Uh, maybe you've heard us talking about it, Ascend Prayer. 
we're calling it, you, you may not have gotten around to signing up yet, that's okay, we've extended it, so you'll be able to do that out in the lobby or on Realm today before we close registration and purchase the supplies for Saturday, but this Saturday morning isn't a time for you to do stuff for God, that's not what this is. This is a time for you to be with God. This isn't a quick check-in with God either, to ask for the car keys, this is sitting with him for three hours actually, in an experiential manner, guided, but experiential to connect with him before we get into the craziness of the fall semester. I hope you'll consider signing up and joining us for that. Not to add one more thing to stretch you thin, but rather to recharge and refresh because you are stretched so thin already. To hope in the Lord. That final call of verse 3. We've seen that it's not prideful trust in our own effort, but humble deference to him. Even when we don't understand. We've seen that it's not frantic activity to justify our existence, but quiet security, that our worth is not in what we produce. And we've seen that it's not a pursuit of greatness, but a contentment with relationship. In that relationship, we start to go to God now, for God's sake. Because we start to deeply believe that God's gifts are nothing if we can't have God himself. Even the greatest gift of all. What's the greatest gift of all? How would you answer that? Greatest gift of all is what? God's love, yeah. Is the indescribable gift of Jesus? I might say salvation, that's maybe how I would answer that question, right? That he saved us. But on further reflection, right? <clears throat> what we so often do rightly talk about as the greatest gift, Jesus dying to save us, dying in our place and rising again to bring us back to God. On final analysis, that greatest gift of salvation is actually exceeded by another gift, one other, only one other. The greatest gift of all is God himself. Whoever said God's love, I think you're right on it. The greatest gift of all is God himself, because think about it. If God was lame or boring or worse, if he was evil, then the news that we've been reconciled to God would not be good news anymore. It would become bad news pretty quickly. That's why we say that there's a gift even better than the greatest gift. Namely, the God whom we're brought into relationship with by the work of his son who died for us. If you currently are in one of those seasons in which you find yourself going to God only long enough to ask him for the car keys, what would it look like to carve out some time to sit with him this week? Not to grab at him for what you want, but to bask for a while in his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you love us with tenderness. We thank you for your patience to us that even as we come to you whining and screaming and pouting for the things that we think we're entitled to, even after many years of following you, as we continue in those infantile patterns, you nevertheless show grace. You're patient with us time and again. You shower us with blessings and you're compassionate to our condition. Help us, Lord, individually, individually and as a congregation to experience more and more deeply uh, what David depicts here in Psalm 131 coming to you as a weaned child comes to its mother. 
not for what you can give necessarily, but first and foremost, just to be with you. Thank you that that's available to us because of the work of Jesus. And help us to avail ourselves of that. In Jesus' name, amen.